0: Hello and welcome to the Devil's Party. I'm Anthony Oliveira, PhD, Culture Critic, Dumpster Raccoon. This week we enter the audience participation section of Revelations as we tackle um, a passage that is sometimes called an interlude, but in fact I think is pretty much the key to the entirety of Revelations. It is extremely weird uh, and I think uh, the great center of this text, which is the moment a mighty angel descends and offers to our author, to our visionary, to John of Patmos, um, a chance to participate in the action that is unfolding. I think what I'll do is take a run at the text, just at like a surface analysis level, what's going on here, who are these pieces, what do they represent, what are some ways people have interpreted this, and then I'm going to backtrack and think about it at a more macro level level. Um, Okay, so we're on uh, chapter 10 of Revelations. And I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. Um, Another might give us pause. Another mighty angel. In fact, Uh, it's easy to glance over that because we've been seeing so many angels, you could just be like, oh yeah, this is another one. But I think the another is actually an adverb there about mighty. Um, We've actually only seen one mighty angel before, and we will only see one mighty angel again. And it is possible to read uh, them as importantly signaling one another. Uh, We see the mighty angel at the beginning, when John is beckoned to begin his action, you'll remember in Revelations 1, um, and we see a mighty angel again in Revelations 22 at the close of the action. Um, So the, the mightiness of these angels, or possibly this same angel, it's not really clear, and we have some weird possibilities that even though it says another, this is actually the same entity again um, occurs at moments where John is bid to be the witness, bid to be the recorder of these events, uh, and that is what is going to happen here. I dislike textual readings that over-determine, like, mathematical centers of texts, um, but it is sometimes useful. The 3-1, the, the one, Act 1, Act 3, Scene 1 scene of most Shakespeare plays is almost always the most important scene. Uh, even if it doesn't seem to be, it's almost always where he hides the matrix of how he's thinking about the theme of the text, for example, the to be or not to be scene in Hamlet. Uh, similarly here, we're very close to something like the center of this text. Now, of course, translation and all these things means that an exact center is a stupid idea to think about. But I do think uh, when a, when an author is so interested in numerology and symmetries, uh, looking at what happens halfway between is usually pretty useful. Uh, and here it's very clearly signaled by the arrival of this mighty angel. You'll notice he is also similarly um, comported in ways that seem to reflect on that earlier passage. He has the rainbow over his head, his face like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He sounds uh, like that earlier entity, that one who seemed to be the sun, maybe was not, right? Like there's a kind of way he's accessing... symbols that should be beyond the capacity of angels i saw many commenters when i was reading about this passage this week that that acted like it's just obvious that this is christ um there's things he does that make it clear he is not quite at the level of god but there's also things he does that make him uniquely accessing god's tools i saw some uh, commenters call it Michael. I saw another one insist he was actually Gabriel. Um, but we're at that level. We're at the extreme end of things, and I do think it does something interesting if the the angel, the messenger who is here being referenced, is a kind of avatar of Christ. Um, but your mileage is going to vary about that. The pillar is like fire. The face like the sun. Um, we similarly in the very next. Uh, passage here have another prop that seems to perhaps be a recurrent prop from earlier the scroll he held a little scroll you may have had book in your version the word is always the same as it was when it was the scroll sealed with the seven seals he held a little scroll open in his hand it's not the hand that's open it's the scroll it's the book Um, is this in fact the book that had the seven seals now open? Is this, in fact, all of human history now at an end? God's project, the deed to the universe, all those concepts we thought about when we were talking about the object sealed with the seven seals. Um, There's a way it's like kind of the end of it, the refuse of it, the littleness is interesting. Is it because the angel is large? It wasn't little before. Um, or is it a different book? It's it's not, there is no answer, <laughs> which is part of what makes the wonderful, uh, um, open evocativeness of this week's passage so fascinating to me. In a text where meanings have been so completely uh, inscribed and rescribed and overdetermined Chapter 10 is full of things that do not solve themselves in a way I find really amazing. He gave a great shout, like a lion roaring. That's the sound Yahweh makes. Um just means loud, though, right? Uh, and when he shouted the seven... Oh, I, se- I missed the part where he sets his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. A very, like, Colossus of Rhodes kind of image, right? Obviously, the important thing is, like, the total dominance. There's something like... Um, He's like the angels from Evangelion, right? Like, just sort of this titanic Godzilla figure, this sort of sublime eruption of horror and complete dominance into the horizon of meaning in this text. Um, and And when he shouted, the seven thunders sounded, again, a phrase directly from the way God talks in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. And then something amazing happens. (laughs) And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. That's amazing, right? Like John is taking for granted. He is meant to record all of this as he was instructed to do. Um, And something is held back. This wonderful lacuna, At the very center of Revelations, the the moment when all is supposed to be revealed, the text that promises to be that great revelation, um, we have this complete donut. We have this complete lacuna. There's this absence into which meaning refuses to inscribe itself and which the text is thinking very carefully about its own obliteration. Something is left out. God leaves something unsaid. It's an idea we saw even in the New Testament in the the Gospels when Jesus uh, says, only God knows the hour, right? Like even the sun is somehow absented from the full plan. Um, And here John keeps the secret of the angel, right? It's this, I grew up uh, Portuguese Catholic. You learn a lot about Fatima. Um, Fatima is this, not very recently actually like early late 19th century uh maybe even 20 i think it's actually 20th century because it's about the world wars yeah 20th century um three peasants uh the virgin mary allegedly appears to them and discloses the mysteries of fatima one of which is supposed to have never have been revealed and like the pope keeps the secret of the mystery of fatima and like what's his name Ratzinger made a big fuss about it and John Paul II made a really big fuss about it and it's still not even clear whether or not those revelations have been made and Ratzinger was all about like, oh, if people knew the mystery of Fatima, the world would be shaken to its core. Um, I love these moments of like, we gotta keep that <laughs> under wraps. And here it is. Uh, a real kind of Gnostic moment, actually, in Revelations, And it, in a religion that I've been insisting is not supposed to keep anything under wraps. John here keeps a secret. Um, then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. There will be no more day delay. Um, your translation might be something time is no longer. Time's up is a great translation of this. But in the days when the seventh angel is to blow his trumpet, the mystery of God will be fulfilled as he announced to his servants the prophets. Very clear here that this mighty angel is not the seventh angel of the trumpets, right? He is um, he has some kind of break. He's some kind of interlude. You'll remember we had a break earlier after the opening of the seven seals whose trumpets we are currently processing um where the the elect were sealed themselves right like they were sort of protected they had their special marks put on them here's another interlude that we are in um and he promises there won't be any more delay right like we are racing towards something like the climax of human history it is notable that he is swearing here again like if you're trying to determine who this angel is you have to deal with the fact that he swears an oath to god which feels like maybe something the high christology of john may or may not allow can john's jesus separate enough from the concept of god to have to swear an oath to god i don't know um Again, many theologians take for granted that this figure is Christ, but if you want to make a case that he is a significantly diminished servant, you would talk about the oath thing, I think. What happens next is uh, deeply weird, but also, (laughs) as we've been finding with many of the weird images in Revelations, actually has a kind of preface. Uh, The angel is going to bid... Uh, John, our narrator, to eat the scroll that he is holding. Um, It has a kind of, like, kind of kinky energy, actually. (laughs) Uh, I just want to read you what is surely its um, precedent, which is, at the beginning, kind of, of the beginning of Ezekiel, when Ezekiel is called to prophesy. You have probably heard me say the name Ezekiel a great many times on this podcast when dealing with revelations, and indeed it does seem to be quite at our narrator's elbow. Um, Here's how his calling goes in Ezekiel. So he's, like, summoned... Uh, Chapter 2 of Ezekiel is pretty short. Uh, He said to me, O mortal, stand up on your feet and I will speak with you. Uh, Mortal, I am sending you to the people of Israel, to a nation of rebels who rebelled against me. So he's being called to be a prophet, right? Um, And then chapter 3, this entity says, He said to me, O mortal, eat what is offered to you. Eat the scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. He said to me, "Mortal, eat this scroll that I give you, and fill your stomach with it." Then I ate it, and my mouth—in my mouth—it was as sweet as honey. Um, and he does indeed say later that it turns bitter uh, in his stomach, or sour. The translation is in both cases kind of the same. Like it's it's unpleasant in the stomach, upsetting to the stomach. Um, as I said, it—it it seems kind of horny to me here uh I'm gonna read it to you uh it certainly became horny in my handling of it in Dayspring um I do think of it as kind of a key moment in uh Revelations in the way to think about John and in the way to think about being human so I'm just going to read it and then we'll kind of unpack it then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again saying go Take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel, who is standing on the sea and on the land. Again, like, (laughs) I'm going to keep reading and then we're going to go back. (laughs) So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat. It will be bitter to your stomach, but sweet as honey in your mouth. So I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Then they said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. That last kind of stitch up is a very familiar phrase to us, right? It's the way he always talks about the going out from Israel into all the nations. Um, It's horny, right? I'm not just imagining it. One of the reasons, I'll just talk about ways that it's horny. (laughs) One of the ways is that it's thinking about us um, being between the angel's legs, right? Like, it keeps emphasizing that we are entering the space, literally, of his crotch, right? Um, <laughs> right? Like, I'm not crazy. Uh, that it's open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. Like, it is kind of a, an approach from below. It is obviously a very phallic object. The sort of... the Command to take it and eat it is obviously extremely Dom sub happening here. Um, and not to be too coarse, but the flavor of it, sweet turning to bitter, is uh, kind of semeny. I'm sorry, <laughs> it just is. <laughs> that is, uh, for those of you who may have had. <laughs> god this podcast is off the rails um it has a certain familiar almost to the level of reaching a meme perhaps the angel ate some pineapple that morning i don't know uh, <laughs> um, i don't think the horniness is accidental i think that uh the sacramental quality of this and the physical erotic quality of this both obtain in incredibly important ways because this is the moment that John goes from being a passive witness to an active participant in history. He is being invited onto the stage and told to become prophet. He is infused physically by this semen-y scroll um, to become this angel's agent in the world and it is why I have made it in writing Dayspring, into this kind of centerpiece moment of extreme sacramentality where the beloved disciple becomes bonded to Christ's mission um, as his speaker. Um, and I don't think I made it up. I think it's pretty present here in this passage, this kind of semi-erotic, certainly sacramental participation in some kind of renovation of history. And I also think it's important that it comes with it um, this strange lacuna, this unspeakable um, speech, Uh, this moment where what the thunder said is occluded from us um, and only the beloved knows what it was. It indicates a kind of extreme separateness. John knows something that God has forbidden him to disclose to us. Um, There is something literally, if I dare go here, uh, there is something unspeakable about the love that is being imparted here. Um, Okay. (laughs) I know that's a lot. It may seem like a reach, but I don't think it actually is. I think it is present in the text. And this desire to reach back to Ezekiel as a kind of foundation is one I understand as an impulse as a writer. When you write yourself into the story, you want to cement yourself onto this um, participatory um, look back into the past. There's a footnote undergirding the author's reach here, right? He's sort of scaffolded himself. Um, And boy, oh boy, do I know what that's like. Um, It's, as I say an amazing moment in this text. The the author is suddenly invited to sort of to eat, to prophesy, and as we'll see next week, to measure. His witnessing has a real and important dimension to it. And I do think it's precisely this that makes this text still kind of speak to us. Um, I think I've talked about it before, but Shakespeare says, like, the incidental scenes are the ones that matter the most, right? The moment where Brutus hangs out with that kid in the tent um, and finds the book in his pocket is why we weep for Brutus at the end. Similarly, I think this moment, this kind of eerily quiet moment, this moment when the horrors stop um, and the sublime God at his mightiest form takes a moment to reach out to this figure on the sidelines and invite him into the text is very significant to me. It makes... Revelations matter at all. Instead of just being this cavalcade of horrors. It's my favorite moment, actually, I think, in this whole text. Um, although the the lady clothed with the sun later might be a close, close runner-up. Um, okay, that's it for this. Next week, um, the interlude kind of continues as uh, John gets a little assignment to do. Um, but I'm going to turn over and start uh, doing the reader analysis uh, we should check out on Patreon. Please support the podcast there. Um, until then, uh, thank you so much. Be brave enough to be kind. Bye-bye.